his name. Amen. John chapter 1 is where we will be this morning in some other passages. One of my favorite memories uh, as a kid at Christmas growing up was the anticipation of the Christmas season. Um, I asked my parents, I was like, when did we put up the Christmas tree? And there was a lot of debate about that today. And my mom seems to remember that we would put it up closer to Christmas. Uh, maybe that was true. Maybe that was part of what made the anticipation so exciting. It was just up for a few weeks. And then, um, and then as you're getting closer to that magical day, Christmas morning, you know, you're starting to have the Christmas parties at school and the Christmas parties at church. And it's all feeding this enthusiasm and this joy, this anticipation. And, and then eventually you're out of school, so you're just at home watching and looking at this empty tree that's, that's decorated, but there's nothing under it day after day after day. Waiting and waiting. Are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to get there? And then uh, joyously, you're, you're watching Christmas movies. That's feeding the anticipation. Back in the day when you, you only watched them when they showed up on television. There was no VCR. You couldn't just watch it whenever you wanted. There was no DVDs or streaming services. You just you saw Rudolph one time a year when it showed up on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock. And that was it. You wait for next year to roll around again. It's all just anticipating. Are we going to get there? Are we going to get there? And then you go to bed one night. And you wake up at 4 a.m., and you go out, and I had three sisters, so there was a lot of presents under the tree. Like, this is amazing. And I was the only boy, so I knew exactly what my presents were. Like, this is really amazing. And I'd play with what I got, and then I'd take, I'd go wake up my sisters and, like, look at this cool stuff that you just got for Christmas. And we'd play, and at some point we'd wake my parents up, and we'd all kind of celebrate Christmas and have a sugary breakfast and go take a nap at 7 a.m. But it was all this joy and excitement that that went that just exploded on this one day and and then the rest of the day was kind of ho-hum like play with cool toys that was fun but all the anticipation that led up to this explosion of excitement was kind of gone once the morning got there and when I think back on Christmas as a kid that's that's kind of what I remember like this, this this excitement where you literally couldn't sleep when you went to sleep on Christmas Eve and as we've been walking through this this story of Advent the the coming of Christ, we've had this buildup, this anticipation for literally hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years from the first time when God made this promise in Genesis 3.15 through promises and prophecies of the Old Testament over hundreds and hundreds of years through the 400 years of silence from God in the period between the Old Testament and New Testament. And then all of that is broken when an angel shows up to Zechariah and Elizabeth and says, you're going to have a son. And this son is going to point the way to the Messiah. And then an angel visits Mary to let her know she's about to have a son, even though you're still a virgin. You've never been with a man. You're not married yet. And then the angel has to show up to Joseph and say, hey, this girl you're engaged to, she's about to become pregnant, but don't freak out. This is all part of this plan of God that he's been prophesying and promising for hundreds of years. You will name him Jesus and he will save God's people from their sins. The spirit of God shows up or, or rather an angelic choir shows up to shepherds in a field announcing the birth of the Messiah in a nearby stable. The spirit of God reveals to two elderly saints who basically lived in the temple, Simeon and Anna. As you're in the temple every day, there's going to be a day, and there was a day when they would see this poor family walk into the temple with an eight-day-old baby, and the Spirit of God would reveal to them, there he is. 
He's the one. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you've been longing to see. At some point in the first two years of Jesus' life, God reveals the birth of his son to, as a king to travelers from the east. They weren't even part of God's people. So that from the early years of Jesus' life, he's being worshipped by the nations. And all of this angelic, prophetic activity that was exploding within these few weeks and few months in this time period in the first century is a picture of how all of creation and especially all of heaven have been waiting and waiting, anticipating that one silent night in that little town of Bethlehem, it happened. God has come. God has come near. Everything we've been waiting for has occurred. Brothers and sisters, don't allow the years and years of Christmas sermons, sermons and Advent readings and traditions take away from the wonder of what happened. The culmination of so much promise and so much waiting. The enormity of what happened, which was centered in the reality that God had become a man. The divine took on the earthly. The eternal took on the temporary. The invisible became visible. God took on flesh and walked among us, became one of us. This, this was miraculous. Our faith hinges on the resurrection. We know this. So we say it every year at Easter. Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus had not been bodily raised from the dead, our faith is worthless and it is in vain. This is all a joke. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But equally as important is the miracle of the incarnation. Because if the miracle of the incarnation hadn't happened, then Jesus just being another guy, dying for his followers, Jesus just being a, a good Jewish rabbi, but just a human, dying for his followers, accomplishes nothing. But because of the miracle of the incarnation, it makes the miracle of the resurrection accomplish everything God desired to accomplish. If he is indeed God in the flesh, then his life, death, and resurrection means everything and changes everything because it's all indeed true. So I want us to explore and enjoy this, this morning the reality of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God in the flesh, has come near to save us and be with us now and forever. First promise in Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. That was 700 years before Christ. Matthew reiterated this promise in the birth narrative in Matthew 1. The angel speaking to Joseph said that she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Matthew says, all of this took place to fulfill what the, was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. He's quoting Isaiah 7. And then Matthew adds, which is translated, God is with us. John lays out more detail what happened to the birth of Jesus. John had the ability to have perspective after the first three Gospels are written. John's hadn't been written yet. He's able to see what the Spirit inspired the other Gospel writers to include, and he's able to come in and give some other details that, that they didn't include. So he starts off his Gospel in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. 
Skip down a few verses, verse 14. This word, this logos, became flesh. So this same word that was with God and was God in the beginning, all things created through him, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then a few verses later, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. This is what makes Christianity unique. It's Jesus, who he is and what he has done. No other religion is built on someone like Jesus, who is God eternal, who descended from heaven to earth and wrapped himself in flesh. So clearly articulated in John chapter 1. Nothing was made apart from him, and this logos, this word, became flesh and dwelt among us. No other religion makes this kind of claim for their founders. But it wasn't just what was written about Jesus. It was also how Jesus perceived himself. Like so many times, Jesus would come, uh, people would come to Jesus, and the first thing Jesus would do before he would heal them was forgive them of their sins, which on so many levels doesn't seem to make sense to us. Why would he, if they're wanting physical healing, why would he first forgive them of their sins? That's not the reason they came. Why would that even be a concern to Jesus, this Jewish rabbi from Nazareth? Unless they have personally sinned against him, offended him, why, Jesus, do you need to forgive them before you heal them? Unless Jesus is more than just a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. Unless Jesus is more than just another human being. Remember the words of David in his great psalm of confession after his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, he says, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah, her husband. David sinned against the baby that he and Bathsheba conceived that would later die as part of God's judgment. But in his psalm of confession, David says to God, against you, God, and you alone, I have sinned. Which doesn't mean he hasn't sinned against those other people, but his ultimate sin was against God and how God had called and created him to act. You see, the ultimate one offended by our sins is God, and the ultimate and greatest forgiveness we need is from God, which Jesus, being God in the flesh, knew when he would forgive the sins of the person who would come to him for physical healing, he knew, I'm dealing with your greater problem. I'm about to also deal with this lesser problem. To you, it seems the greater problem. But I'm dealing first with your greater problem, that you are a sinner and you need God's forgiveness. He knew their greatest problem wasn't the need for a physical healing. He knew, yes, I'm about to heal you physically, but one day this body will break down again. One day you will get sick again. And one day this body will quit working and you will die. But what happens about life beyond this life? What about eternal life? Which only happens when we know God, which can't happen if there are sins not dealt with. And so Jesus as God is dealing with their greater issue so they wouldn't just be healed, but they would also be saved. If Jesus isn't God, it makes no sense for him to do that. He's not actually accomplishing anything. 
And the religious uh, religious leaders knew this. They didn't believe he was God, and they were furious because they knew by him forgiving their sins, he was making a claim to deity. And that's just one example. We could look at dozens more of how Jesus perceived himself. How Jesus knew who he was. He was not just a good teacher who unfortunately got caught up in the political tension between Rome and, Jew, and Jew, uh, the Jews, the religious leaders of the Jews. He got himself and got himself somehow killed and his followers just loved him so much and they wanted power themselves. And so they decided after he died that I'll, they'll claim that he rose from the dead. We'll rewrite his life to make it seem like he was a Messiah. No, what you have in the Gospels is evidence from those closest to him. They believed he was God and worshipped him as God. And Jesus let them. Like he let his closest followers worship him in that way. And what's mind-blowing about that is there was no group of people less likely to do that in the first century than the Jewish people. To believe that the God of the Old Testament had become a man. In their mind, they can't even imagine such a possibility. And so for them to begin to believe that Jesus was and is God in the flesh, who has come near to us and walked in our shoes, that it's unexplainable unless it actually was true. That's another amazing aspect of the incarnation of God. God has come this close to us. Like, think of all the ways which God had made himself known in the past. Fiery torches passing between dead animals that Abraham had cut in half. Not something you really want to get very close to. You probably want to get very far away from that. A fiery mountain and earthquakes to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. A thick cloud when the temple was built and dedicated by Solomon. A terrifying angelic-like presence to others like Isaiah in God's throne room. Perhaps Perhaps the most intimate encounter with God in the Old Testament was when Jacob wrestled God and God broke his hip. Moses asked to see his face and all he got from God was his backside. John plays on this Old Testament imagery when he says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt there is tabernacle. Jesus, the word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. He knew what his Jewish readers would be thinking when he used that word. Just as God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, so now God is dwelling among his people in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Not like Moses, but as a man who is approachable and accessible. And Paul, uh, Paul understood this when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 and uh, 4, comparing Moses and Christ. Moses had been in God's presence and had to put a veil over his face afterward because he would literally be glowing with God's glory in front of the people, and it was troubling. But now in Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, light, light shine out in the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What did shine on Moses, and he had to cover and hide, now shines in our hearts, all of us who are in Christ, not just Moses, but now we all get to experience this and share in this and not hide from it, but actually let it shine through us to others. 
so this great, amazing, terrifying, big and glorious God, mountain shaking God cannot see his face. We have to hide from his presence, God. By the time of Matthew one and Luke one and two, this God had become a baby. Now, who's afraid of a baby? Like the hardest hearts will melt over the sight of a baby. No one's scared of an infant. We all, in fact, have the same reaction. We want to grab the little baby. We want to hold it and nuzzle it, smell it. It smells so good for some reason. Feel their little soft head and that little wisp of hair on their head. Even my hair doesn't feel the same as a little baby's hair. It's just softer, sweeter, kinder. And you just want to be as close as you can. How vulnerable and accessible a baby is. And this baby on this night in Bethlehem was God in the flesh. In one of the most glorifying moments during the ministry of Jesus, his transfiguration on the mountain, Peter's response to seeing Jesus in his glory, talking to Moses and Elijah, wasn't to hide and be afraid. But he said, let's build some shelters and stay here. Let's enjoy this even longer. God has come near to us in Jesus and made what was once terrifying someone to embrace and someone to be embraced by. God has come near. God has taken on flesh so he could accomplish the redemption of a lost and broken creation. And the result is now for us, God dwells with his people. We are now the dwelling place of God on earth. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet and mouth. We continue the work that he began, acts of faith, truth, love, compassion, so that the name and fame of Jesus spreads to more and more people. And the idea is, as people encounter us, they encounter Christ. That's what it's supposed to look like. This is why we're here. This is why we exist as a church. We don't exist as a church just to show up in this building on Sunday mornings and go through the motions of a worship service. We don't exist as a church just to be able to tell people, oh, yeah, I'm a member at such and such church. We don't exist just to, to have people who are our friends that can check on us or we check on them. That, that's not the ultimate reason we exist as a church. Ultimately, we exist as a church so that Jesus can be made known through us. As a community of God's people, people, when they encounter us, they encounter Christ. This is what he's come to accomplish. And this all happens not because we made it happen, because he did everything necessary. and He came after us to bring us in. And now he lives inside of us. Do you believe this? Do you know this to be true about yourself? Rankin Wilborn, in, in his book, Union with Christ, he writes about this reality. God dwelling with us in Christ and us alive in Christ. He says, when we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only his death, has significance for us. We share in his life and obedience, his death and his resurrection, even his ascension. We participate in someone, in another's victory. All that is his becomes ours. How can such things be? God in Christ assumed our full humanity to heal our full humanity. He came all the way down to blaze a trail all the way back for us to live in the presence of God. 
This means our union with Christ is rooted and grounded in Christ's union with us in the incarnation. And so Charles Wesley's words in the old hymn may now come into sharp focus. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. Understanding this reality is essential to us in our Christian life. He goes on, Wilkin, uh, Wilborn says, And yet for many of us, union with Christ might feel vague and shadowy, not central or basic. This has very real consequences for our everyday life with God. As our understanding and appreciation of union with Christ has diminished, so too has our sense of what salvation means. We may know what God has saved us from, but have we lost sight of what God has saved us for? Becoming a Christian is not simply coming to believe certain things about a God who remains outside of you. And being a Christian is not simply about what you do or don't do. Christianity is a life of faith, but it's a life of faith. You've been grafted into God's own life, invited in to participate in the fellowship of God. And 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So fully embracing that God dwells in us means we are not nearly as limited as we think we are. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So who do you desire to be? How much transformation do you desire to see from Jesus being alive inside of you? How close do you really want to walk with Jesus? Is there a longing inside of you for you to be as close as possible in intimacy with Jesus? Are, are you comfortable with him just kind of being arm's length? As long as life is okay, if he's over here kind of doing my own thing, I'm really more comfortable with that. I don't want to get too close to him because I know if I get too close to him, he's going to demand and expect a lot out of me. So just kind of stay over here where it's safe. Like, how close do you want to be with Jesus? What negative and harmful emotions, negative and harmful habits, thought patterns, beliefs, do you no longer want to be trapped by? You want to see him take care of. But you don't know how long I've been dealing with this. You don't know how long I've been struggling with this. You don't know how much this is who I am. And you, brother and sister, have not fully realized how powerful Jesus is and what Jesus can actually accomplish in you. We have the very presence and power of God alive inside of us, and there literally is no limit to what he desires to accomplish inside of us. No limit to the sins and harmful habits and thought patterns that he can overcome. He can overwhelm us with his love and truth. As we head to a new year and, and we have this yearly battle with our desire for transformation, Christian brother and sister, you are not as limited as you think you are or sometimes by how we live. Do you see and believe God lives inside of you and can and does, does desire to change you in ways that you never thought were possible? Which doesn't mean it happens overnight. It could take months and years but do you believe and see all that Jesus desires to see happen in you and through you? Let's get rid of the cynicism and skepticism 
about how much God can and does desire to change us and simply believe, okay, Jesus, you live inside of me. There's no greater power in the universe than you. What do you want to change in me? And then how can I join you in that, that work of transformation? Which starts with intimacy and time with him. Carving out mental space and heart space and actual time in your day. Like we can't read and watch all the entertainment options that are out there. We can't fill every second of our day with social media and just leave no space for Jesus and somehow magically expect to enjoy him more and more. Consider all that he has done to come close to us. Leaving heaven, coming to earth, walking in our shoes, suffering and dying so we can redeem his people and take up residence inside of us. Maybe we can give him a few minutes. Maybe we can give him a half an hour a day. Instead of treating him as optional, instead of only running to him when we need him, we can actually give him all of us and set aside time to enjoy him and listen to him and focus on him. Wherever you are, realize your response to Jesus can't just be ho-hum. John Stott writes in his book, Basic Christianity, there are three basic responses to Jesus in the Gospels. Either someone was terrified of him and wanted to run away and hide, they hated him and wanted to kill him, or they worshipped him and fell down before him and gave him everything. There was no other option when you realize who Jesus actually was. There was no, well... He seems to be a nice guy. Uh, I'll come back around to you later on when I have more time. So this Christmas, God has come near to us in Jesus to make us his people to live with us, for us to know him, love him, enjoy him, and obey him. In whatever ways that's not happening as much as you want, guess what? He is here to help you. If you would turn to him and trust him, believe him, follow him, obey him, in whatever ways the hardness of this life has made it hard to see and know and experience his strong, comforting presence. Know that none of the hard stuff of life changes the reality of who he is and who you are in him. He has never left you. He will never leave you. And he will continue to work in your life to help you see and know and enjoy his strong, gracious presence to help Jesus thank you so very much that you have come near that you did not stay far away when we were at our worst you have come very very near and close to us and the Bible even says you're not far away from anyone who calls out to you much much closer than we realize and father I don't know how that needs to be received by everyone in this room or other people who may be listening or watching but you do. You not only have created us in your image and sustained our life all these years. You know every hair that is on our head. You know every cell that is in our body. You know every fear that we face at night. You know every bit of anxiousness that we struggle to overcome. Every fear of the future, our fear of the future of our children, our grandchildren. None of that has escaped your attention. And again, you, you don't stay far away and you're uncaring or uninterested. You're actually the most interested, the one who cares the most. And so allow us to experience your presence afresh and anew. 
today, this week, this month, as we head into a new year. We want to enjoy and see and be fully aware that we have the presence of you living inside of us. Make it real. For anyone here who that's not true of because they're not trusting and believing in Jesus, make it real for them especially. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name.